John 6, 36 through 47. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is the word of God. Well, if you've been around here very long, you know that our practice is to work our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse preaching through the Bible is our primary teaching method. And it requires us sometimes to deal with difficult subjects. I mean, if you're working through a book of the Bible, you don't just say, oh, we're going to skip this chapter, right? I mean, that would not have a lot of integrity. And so uh, we don't do that. We work through, and sometimes those topics are a little difficult, sometimes controversial. Uh, The topic of the day is, uh, we certainly don't shy away from that, because I've often found in spiritual matters when I'm forced to look at something in depth and really wrestle with it, then it becomes fresh to me and I'm able to stretch beyond my preconceived notions of what is true and what is right and consider deeply what God has to say in His Word. It's at those times that I generally grow the most. And so we're going to do that today. The subject of the day is election. The word uh, predestination and election. Uh, These two terms are used uh, rather interchangeably. Now, let me say, not everybody agrees with this, with us on this understanding of election. If you're here this morning and you don't don't necessarily agree with the position that we're going to be teaching in a little bit, well, that's okay. You're still welcome. We love you and uh, enjoy Consider it, honestly consider what uh, we're thinking about today. If it's new to you, just take some time to wrestle with it. Because most of us who have come to this conclusion have wrestled with it for a time. It doesn't normally just click on and say, oh, now I understand. So um, most of us, could we say, how many really wrestled with this one? Yeah, yeah, I know I did. Wrestled for a long period of time. So if it's new, new uh, new to you, uh, just just wrestle for a while. You see, we really want ethos to be a place where we, on the one hand, honor the Word of God and are unapologetic about our understanding of it, but at the same time, we want to allow time and space for the Holy Spirit through the Word to grow us. And so we're all on different paths, all different places. And so we, 
it's a safe place is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Um, I trust God to meet us here and honor his word. So the doctrine of election, that was a long preamble, wasn't it? Sorry. Um, the doctrine of election is woven throughout the, uh, this portion of the scriptures here in John chapter 6. I think it's well summarized in verses 37 and verse 44. And that's so, so we're going to focus a lot of our attention on those, on those verses. Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And verse 44 then says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, there are two views about what this, these uh, texts mean. Both views believe that no one can come to Jesus without God drawing them. Everybody believes that. Both views acknowledge that not everyone comes to Jesus. There is a heaven and a hell. Some come to Jesus. Some don't come to Jesus. So on that, we're all in agreement. But where we differ in our agreement is where we, uh, the understanding that one, the first view says that God draws everyone to himself. But the ultimate decision is with the individual. I was checking myself. First view. God draws everyone, but the ultimate decision is up to the individual. In this view, God's drawing the individual to himself does not cause him to come, but God makes it permissible for him to come or possible for the individual to come. In other words, God grants permission for the individual to come. Now, the second view, the one that I'm presenting and one I believe is scriptural and, and what our church teaches, is that God draws men to himself, but not all men. This group of which he calls are called the elect. And all of the elect will come to him. Not just some, but every single one. In this situation, God is the causal effect, if you will. He is the one who is making the effect. He is the one who's drawing men to himself. And that drawing to himself is effectual every single time. Everyone. Everyone to whom God calls comes. So God is not making it simply possible. He is causing it to happen. This is one of the tenets known as Reformed Theology. So if you hear that term, that theological term, that's, uh, this is a tenet of what uh, it means. Now next week we're going to look at a couple more tenets found in John chapter 6 about perseverance of the saints and uh, irresistible grace. But today I think this one is enough, okay? It's a big enough subject. So we're going to explore these two statements found in verses 37 and 44, okay? In 37... All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then we're just going to close it out. And I'm just going to share really personally why the doctrine of election is precious to me. Okay? These three ways. So, 
But first, before we get into that, let's see what's happening in this passage. If you'll remember from last week, you saw that part of the crowd, that crowd that Jesus had fed the, uh, the almost 12, 15,000 people from the five loaves and two fish, some of those went across the sea and found him in Capernaum. And that's where we pick up the, the, the story. We jump in in the story where they, we find that they're grumbling because Jesus says in verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus, how do you say you come down from heaven? We know your, your mom and dad. He's been telling them that he is the bread of life and that God has sent him into the world. And if we come to Jesus, come to him, we'll have life. And they say, hey, what do you mean come down from heaven? We know your mom and daddy. You didn't come from heaven. You came from Galilee. You're our neighbors. What do you say that? Because they did not understand him. They rejected what he had to say. He only then ramped it up. Instead of backing off a little bit, he ramped it up in verses 51 through 52. We looked at last week where he says, okay, you now need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, that sent them through the roof, right? The more rejection Jesus seemed to get, the more explicit he became. But our focus this morning is on Jesus' response to the grumbling. How do you explain the fact that these people, these very same people, had just eaten the loaves and the fish, 15,000 people, and they knew what Jesus had done? How do you explain it to them that now they reject Him? That they don't see who He is? That they don't understand How can they not get it? We said uh, in weeks previous that most of the illnesses, sickness, was done away with in Palestine in those days. Nobody was sick anymore. Jesus had fed. How do they not get that Jesus is the Messiah and accept whatever he has to say? What's interesting to me here is that Jesus is not surprised at all. He doesn't seem to be surprised or taken aback at their rejection. Incredible evidence. It would seem like it would be harder not to believe that he was the Messiah than to believe. But you see, their eyes were blind to him. They could not see. They could not understand. And it is into this situation that we find Jesus says in verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Notice he doesn't say, all who come to me, the Father will give to me. If that was what he was saying, we come, we decide, the Father recognizes our decision, and he makes us gifts for his Son. He allows them to come. But that is not what he says. He says, whoever my father gives to me will come to me. 
If you come to Jesus, it's because the Father gave you to His Son as a gift. Theologians call this interaction the theology or the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Some people call it the eternal covenant. And if you really want to impress your friends, you'll pull out the Latin and say the pactum salutis. Same thing. The covenant of redemption. Simply put, in infinity past, before time began, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit made a covenant within the Trinity. A pact, if you will. In that interaction, God the Father gives a love gift to His Son. He promises Jesus to give Him a people for His own possession. A people who will belong to Jesus alone. The Father would choose those people and He promises the Son to redeem them and give them as a gift. Now the Son, in turn, promises that He will earn the salvation of those to whom God has given Him, the Father has given Him. That Jesus would come to earth as a man. He would purchase their pardon. He would earn the right to stand in their place by His perfect obedience to the law of God. And in the proper time, He will receive their punishment. He will die for them. He would atone for their sins. One day, after all the elect has gathered, then Jesus would then again bring them to the Father and give them back as a gift to Him. Then the Holy Spirit pipes in. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, Father, you give these gifts, this gift to your uh, son. Jesus, you purchase them. I will apply the grace and the mercy that you have provided for them when they come. I will lead them to you. And so you see in this whole Trinitarian covenant where all three persons of the Trinity come together to purchase, to atone, and bring the elect to Himself. Listen in Jesus' last prayer, the priestly prayer in John 17. With these things in mind, now listen to what He is saying to His Father with His disciples there at the end. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven And said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Do you hear that covenant, that eternal covenant resonating all throughout that passage? 
These persons are given to Jesus by the Father, purchased by the Son, and grace applied by the Spirit. These people are the elect, the chosen people of God, the Father's precious gift to His Son. Now this covenant occurred in eternity past. Think back to 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice the contrast in the tenses of these verses. The, the Son is waiting for those whom the Father has given. All the Father gives, that's present tense, right? All the Father gives will come, that's the future tense. Now look at verse 39, I trust it's there. And this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that what? He has given me. What tense is given? It's past tense. In eternity past, God has given a people to His Son. In other words, the choice of God in eternity past to give this people who are coming now and will come in the future. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we're here. We are calling men and women to believe and be saved, knowing that there are those whom God has chosen from eternity past and they will come. We get to be a part of a grand scheme that's so much bigger than what we are. We get to come and be a part of that by calling men and women to be saved. All right. Now, let's look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. My question is, why not? Why not? Why can't people come on their own without the Holy Spirit's involvement? Why does it take the Holy Spirit to draw them to himself? You have to go back all the way to the creation. To the fall. Adam and Eve are in this perfect garden. And then Adam chooses freely to disobey God by eating the forbidden fruit. He chose to throw off God's authority over his life. He chose to refuse to believe that God's commands were really for his good. And he chooses to disobey. He chooses to believe Satan's lie that he really needs to have authority over his life, that God the Father is, is holding out on him. He convinces Adam that he needs to have that self-determinant, his self-determination to truly be happy and whole. So Adam sought his own authority and he sinned by disobeying God. And when he did that, something in his nature changed. Something was different. His nature became skewed and disobedient and rebellious. Adam was our representative in the garden. As Adam went, so all does his descendants go. We inherit Adam's sinful nature. His propensity to throw off God's rule and reign. We inherit his rebellious heart. 
that does not desire to worship him. But it all starts with Adam. Let me read for you Romans chapter 5 verse 12. The rest of the chapter deals with this same subject, but for time, we're just going to read verse 12. Listen. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This whole section of chapter 5 speaks about Adam's trespass and Adam's disobedience and, and Adam's death and condemnation. You and I inherit that proclivity to love the things that God hates and hate the things that God loves. William Henley, an English poet, says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Do you hear that longing for self-determination, self-authority? I am the master. That's our sinful nature inherited from Adam. Now, the fall results in our being unable and incapable of coming to Jesus on our own. It's against our nature. It's unnatural for us without the Holy Spirit involvement to come on our own. Let me try to illustrate that. Um, how natural for it is it for a lion to give up his meat diet and start eating grass. It's pretty unnatural, right? Does it mean that a lion cannot eat grass? No. It doesn't mean that at all. It means it's not his nature. He's not going to do that. What about a sheep or a cow all of a sudden becoming a carnivore? Is it possible? Well, I, I guess it would be, but it seems inconceivable, doesn't it? Why? Because it's against their nature. So in much the same way, can we come to Jesus? Well, perhaps, but we won't because we're unable and incapable because it's against our nature. Listen to Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. So no one does good and not even one. It's against our nature. But I think the best picture for me and the one that, that made a difference for me is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Ephesians that in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I am dead. He's talking about spiritual death, right? I was dead spiritually. Not spiritually sick. Not spiritually weak. Not on my deathbed. But as a dead man, I didn't want anything. I didn't feel anything. I was not seeking anything. 
I was dead, right? Tell me what happens if you stick a dead man's toe with a pin. What happens? We have some med school students here. But nothing happens, right? Why? Because they're dead. They can't feel anything. He is unfeeling. There is no life. The same is true when the story of Jesus is told without the Spirit's work in a person's life. There's just no response. There's no comprehension. There's nothing. It's exactly what is happening in John 6 with the crowd. When they should have understood. How can they miss it? And yet, spiritually dead men cannot see. They don't understand. I'm reminded of the story of Lazarus. If you know the story of Lazarus, Lazarus was Jesus' friend and Lazarus died. And Jesus didn't come to mourn with the family until three days later. He'd been in the grave three days. And he grieved with his family and his family said, Uh, If you'd only been here, you could have saved him. Jesus says, okay, let's go to the grave. And they rolled the rock away. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Now, let me ask you. Lazarus was dead. How did he hear Jesus' voice? Was he Lying there dead, waiting for someone to say something. No, that's ludicrous, right? Jesus made him alive. And then when he became alive, he heard Jesus' voice. And he came forth. See, the first thing that has to happen for us spiritually is for the Holy Spirit to change us and to make us alive. And then we can hear the call of the gospel. And we can come forth to him, just like Lazarus. I have a friend, uh, Tom Nettles. He's a a preacher of, or uh, he teaches preachers at Southern Seminary. And he tells a story about how he gets all his preacher students to come and, and to write a sermon, right? Which you would anticipate that would be something that you would do, right? But then he loads them all up in a van and he takes them to a cemetery, And he takes them to the cemetery. And when they get there and they're all gathered around him, he says, okay, now I want you to spread out all over the cemetery and I want you to preach to the gravestones the message that you prepared. Well, everybody kind of chuckles and they stand around and what a joke because he's really kind of a joker. And, And he says, no, you don't understand. I'm deadly serious. If you don't preach your sermon with all of your heart to the gravestones, I'm going to fail you in this class and you'll have to come back and do it next time. So it's got to be quite a sight to see all these students spread out all over the cemetery and preach to the gravestones with all the passion, all the heart, everything that they have. And so he gathers them all back when they're finished and he very solemnly says, guys, this is what you will be doing for your career. He says, every time you preach, or maybe not every time, but when you preach, there often will be people that are hearing you that are not Christians. They don't know Jesus. They're not following Christ. You, through your 
communication methods through your bright wording and uh, your uh, your speech and and your passion have just as much ability to cause them to come to light as you do in this cemetery. He was pointing to the fact that it is the Holy Spirit's role whenever we tell somebody about the gospel, you're not going to argue somebody into the kingdom. You're just not going to do it. You are not smart enough or bright enough to bring a dead man to life. But we have all the confidence in the world that the Holy Spirit uses broken, fumbling words of a Christian to bring other people to life. You were dead. Before the Holy Spirit gives us life, nothing happens. So let me just... that. That's laying out the doctrine. But let me just share with you in the moments that remain why this is so precious to me. Uh, First of all, the doctrine of election leads me to worship. It leads me to worship our Father. Many people find that the doctrine of election, when they're first introduced to it, is cold and harsh. They don't like it. It's just not fair. You know, we live in an era, uh, uh, a day when egalitarianism, equality is, is, is spoken of a lot, as it well as should be. But we want everything not just to be equal, but we want it to be the same, the same for everyone, and we fight for sameness. And so when I say God chooses some and not others, immediately that those hairs on the back of your neck kind of stand up. Maybe that's your your uh, reaction this morning just doesn't seem fair we we tend to think about grace we'd rather it be something like okay we're we're all the human race is a part of this gigantic apartment complex and the owner of the complex builds this great big pool in the middle this pool of grace and when he finishes the pool He says, all right, guys, here it is. If you want it, jump in. I'm going to the office. Many of us have that kind of understanding of grace. And that would be okay, except the analogy breaks down. It would be more like what is true is if he went to his cemetery and built a pool of grace right there in the middle of the cemetery and told all the gravestones like the seminary students, okay, everybody who wants some grace, jump in. How ludicrous is that? Those who are spiritually dead cannot come to Christ without the Holy Spirit's drawing them. Okay. That's not the way it is. The way or the reason why this doctrine is so precious to me is that God didn't just give me a pool of grace, but sometime in eternity past, in the middle of this this covenant session, the Father said, what about that Steve? 
that will come a long time from now. What about him? And he says, you know what? I want him for my own. I want to call him to myself. I want to love him. I want Steve to be my son. I choose him. I will choose to pour out my affection on him, not because of anything he's done. He's not the brightest bulb in the pack. There's nothing special about him. I just want him. I will adopt him. I will invite him and and bring him into my family and invite him to the table. Jesus, you go by your new younger brother by your death. You purchase him. Holy Spirit, when the time comes, you're going to redeem him and bring him into the family. And they both responded with a resounding yes. Let me ask you, how do I not worship that God? How do I not when he, before time began, loved me and chose me to be his own? How do I not worship him? How do I not bring everything I have to live for him. He is my father. And Jesus is my brother and the Holy Spirit lives in me. So the doctrine of election is precious to me because it leads me to worship. It humbles me because, uh, that's the second one if you're taking notes, the doctrine of election humbles me. I'm a Christian because God chose me from before the foundation of the world. It wasn't because of anything that I've done or not done. In fact, it's not about me at all. It's because he has a loving heart. I have no reason for pride or arrogance. The doctrine of election makes me grateful. I was a believer and a follower of Jesus before I came to understand these truths, you know. Um, but when I began to understand these truths, grace just became so much more precious to me. Because I know I had nothing to do with it. I just received the gift. That's all. The doctrine of election gives me assurance of my salvation. We're going to talk about this next week. But if my salvation is all of God, I'm not going to screw it up. It's not about how tightly I hold on to God. It's how tightly He holds on to me. So I'm not going to mess this one up. I'm his son and I will be his son forever. The doctrine of election, this is number five. The doctrine of election gives me hope for evangelism and missions. The Bible teaches me that God has those whom he is calling to himself. My job is to go find them. They don't have an E on their forehead. So what does that mean to me? Because everyone that I meet may be one of God's children that I need to speak about Jesus with. It encourages me. It gives me confidence. There are those I... I'll be honest. There are those who I think are so far away from Christ that I, I would kind of give, them, give up hope. I hate to admit that. But there are those. But then God reminds me that they're no further than I was. 
They're no different than I am. If God is the one who changes the heart, then there are no hearts that are too hard for him to bring to his own. No heart. Too hard. And it's no harder for him to bring them than it was to bring me. When the dead comes to life, they come to life. John Alexander was a missionary to New Zealand. And he found their hearts so hard. I'm teasing, okay? No harder than anyone else's. Okay, all right. Sarah's catching up with the rest of us. We're good. But before he went to the mission field, Alexander said, if this doctrine of election is true, I can't be a missionary. But after 20 years of being on the field in New Zealand, when he came home, he said, if the doctrine of election is not true, I can't be a missionary. And I think we find people's hearts are hard to the gospel. But we can take courage because we know that God is the God who brings the death to life. Sixth, the doctrine of election drives me to pray. I stand before you week after week and I don't know your heart. I have a good indication for some of you that I know. I don't know if you're redeemed or not. I don't know if God's worked on your heart. But I can tell you one thing, that if your eternal destiny somehow is linked and dependent upon what I say and how well I say it, I can't handle it. That's too much pressure. I just can't handle it, and I'm done. The weight of responsibility is too much. But if I know that God can use, well, if God can use Balaam's ass, He can use me. Right? And that gives me so much confidence. It gives me courage, but it drives me to my knees asking God to bless our time together. And finally, the doctrine of election causes me to trust Him. If He has known me from before the foundation of the world, if He chose me before time began, if He will keep me for all eternity, I think I can trust Him with what happens to me day to day. And so it leads me to trust Him. As we wrap it up, kids, come on in. I have to wonder if some of you are wondering, am I one of those special people? Am I one of the elect? Has He chosen me? I want to speak specifically to those who may be wondering that today. At the end of verse 37, He says, And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. This phrase tells us two things. Whoever desires may come. If you want to come, Jesus is calling you. He says very clearly that you will be received gladly. His invitation goes out to you. 
The offer of grace and forgiveness is for you. Jesus receives sinful men. Amen? Amen. He accepted me. So come to him. The other thing I want to point out is that the first part of verse 37 speaks in general. All Anyone who wants to come to me, I will never cast out. But look at the end of verse 37. Well, first he says, all that that the Father gives to me will come to me. Right? That all, that general. But look what he says at the end. And the one who comes to me. That's personal. That's an individual. If you desire him, if you long for him, trust that he is making you alive and you will be received. I plead with you. If you don't know him today, receive him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've granted that we look deeply into your word. I don't know that any of us have all the answers. We have a lot of unanswered questions. But we also know that you're greater than our understanding and all our unanswered questions. You are more righteous than what we can conceive and your ways are perfect. Help us to understand your word. We know that you love us and we trust you with our souls and our unanswered questions. Our lives are in your hands and there's nowhere we'd rather them to be. We come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, now we come to a time of the Lord's Supper. And we're reminded of, of in this chapter 6, that Jesus makes those statements, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, those are the ones who are mine. And I think he's doing two things. The first is he's reminding us of his broken body and shed blood that he gave for us on Calvary's cross. He was reminding me that that is our only hope. But as we talked about last week, I, I really believe when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's, he's, he's alluding to the fact that when we take in food, that we take it into ourselves. It becomes a part of us. And then it works its way to every cell in our body. It nourishes us and cherishes us. The Lord's table is a time where, for believers, that it's a time of nourishment. When we feed on what Jesus has done and who He is for us. And so may it be a time of nourishment for you. I don't know what you're facing I don't know the struggles that you've had just this week. But I know you need Jesus. And sometimes we are so desperate that we just want something we can put our hands on. Well, right now, put your hands on the bread. And put your hands on the wine. And trust Him to see you through. It is sad on the 
night that the Lord was with his disciples, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. And he said, this is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus knew that we needed reminders. We needed physical reminders of His broken body and His shed blood, but also that we need to feed on Him every day. Jesus compares Himself to to Moses in John 6 and he said this is the bread which comes down from heaven not as the fathers ate and died but he who eats this bread will will live forever if you are a believer here this morning welcome to the table feed on Jesus Uh, much like we used to do we'll, we'll come down these middle aisles and then go back around on the outside and find your seat uh, there are trash cans over there for your, for your cup. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, or you don't know, you know, again, you're welcome here. We're love, we love having people who are not uh, as far along in their path as they want to be. Um, just spend this time in reflection. Think about what you've heard. And uh, just pray something like, Jesus, if you're real, Show yourself to me. He's faithful and he'll do just that. We have our offering baskets up here, the connection cards. If you say, Steve, I want to talk with someone about what you've said. and I just want to, I want to know more. We'll put it in one of the baskets, okay? So let's all stand. I'll be in the back. If you want someone just to pray with you, I would love to do that. So come to the table.